We're in verse 14 of chapter 16. Uh, I, I don't think I need to remind you uh, much, but I want to make sure it's, it's real clear. We are at the we're at the point in our study of 1 Samuel where, where the author is enabling us to transition from Saul to David. Now, Saul's going to be on the scene the rest of the book until he dies on Mount Gilboa at the end of the book. But Saul, as you know, has been, his dynasty has been rejected by the Lord. His, his followers are not obeying him. Chapter 14, chapter 15, God has removed him from being king, at least in terms of, of God's perspective. And we read in verse 14, uh, in contrast to verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David, because David, Samuel, had gone down to Bethlehem, had anointed David as the next king, presumably privately. And then the next verse, which is where I want to pick up this morning, now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. We did talk about that last week, but just it, it reminds us of the function of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, which is different than in the New Covenant or the New Testament. His enablement and empowerment for service, which is what the Spirit did, is gone. His anoint his evidence of the anointing of the Lord is gone. Then we read in the second half of verse 14, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. This is a very problematic verse. First of all, um, I, I'm reading for the ESV translation. They have chosen to translate that word harmful spirit. It is translated a lot of different, I don't know how many different translations we have here in the group, but I'm, I'm rather certain there are several different translations of that, of that adjective. Again, they are, ESV is translating it harmful. How do we understand that? Because it says, from the Lord. Now that raises those theological questions. Does the Lord uh, enable this? Does the Lord allow this? Does the Lord permit this? Does the Lord cause this? I mean, they're the struggles we have theologically. Right now, I want to stay away from that. I want to talk about just that phrase, harmful spirit. It, as, we, as we try to analyze this, we have, we have three true choices here. Number one, it means demonic possession. There isn't real evidence for that, but some suggest that, that this harmful spirit is a demon. That, in other words, Saul will be demon-possessed. Again, that is probably not a real popular view. There isn't a lot of evidence for that. The second choice would be a, like an, uh, an evil messenger, that, that the Lord is allowing something to touch his body, that is a source of torment to him. Or thirdly, which is what I will lean toward, is in effect mental illness. In effect, uh, a, a matter of mental instability. We already have seen in Saul evidence of a paranoia. Now, I'm using terms we use in the 21st century, but I, I think it's all right to do that. We've already seen evidence of Saul's paranoia. We've already seen evidence of his seeming insecurity about things. John, John Davis, in his marvelous commentary, writes this. The effects of this evil spirit, harmful spirit, working in Saul's life were mental and psychological. Saul is afflicted by a form of insanity, which manifested itself in sudden fits of terror, unreasoning rages, 
and on occasions homicidal violence. These symptoms suggest a manic depressive psychosis. Uh, quoting there from John, uh, John Davis's commentary, but he is also quoting from a number of Christian psychologists and psychiatrists. That means that what we're going to see from here on out is a psychological, mental, and emotional instability in Saul. Now, whether you want to give it the technical term, he's bipolar, he's manic depressive, uh, he's a delusional paranoic, they're all labels you could use. I, I'm not an expert in any of that. But I would suggest rather strongly that Saul's condition is a mental illness, mental health, mental instability condition. And it's evidenced by his behavior. And you'll, you'll see that as we go through the rest of the book for Samuel until he's killed. That is, that is what you see in Saul, how he treats David. He goes from welcoming him and saying kind things about him and throwing a harpoon at him. He's going to be affirming him, and David, as he plays his instrument and sings, is going to soothe his spirit. And the next moment, he takes up a sword and chases after him. And then he's going to he's going to give orders to kill David. He's going to hunt David. Going to try to hunt David down in the Judean wilderness. They are not signs of somebody mentally stable. So I want to suggest that again, it's a, it's extremely difficult to translate from the Hebrew into English. It translate it doesn't it hardly has any meaning to us. But when you look at his behavior, you read all that behavior back into this word. We're going to suggest it's a mental illness, mental health, mental instability issue. If you want to call it manic depressive, that's fine. But I'm not going to be that technical. Do you are you, are you with me on that? I, I I wanted to elaborate a little bit on that because I want to address the other part of this from the Lord. Yeah, raises, I thought about a lot. I mental illness in my family. And legitimate, you know, chemically based mental illness. And today we talk about mental illness when it seems to me we should be talking about moral illness. That we justify we we you know somebody's on on some kind of drugs, illicit drugs. We say, well, they have a mental illness, and they try to terminate the drug use. Um, how you know? It, it, We've always had misbehavior. We've always had moral issues throughout history, but we seem to reclassify it as, as not moral, but somehow mental. Well, I want to I want to make a, a very important distinction here. I think from the perspective of the Bible, and I think just really the perspective of common sense. If a person let's use an extreme example. If a person is an alcoholic, we would legitimately say that person, there's something both mental, psychologically, and potentially even genetic or physical about that. Now, that will explain it. But what goes with that is still you, even though you struggle with whatever you want to classify it as an alcoholic, that doesn't mean that you're not responsible for your actions. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah, okay, I classify, I'm not, but pretend. I classify you as an alcoholic. That doesn't mean you're now absolved from the consequences of anything you do. That's silly. You are responsible. As an, it's the same way with a person who has addictive tendencies toward drugs or toward pornography. They're all addictive behaviors. 
That doesn't mean you're not responsible for what you choose to do. Now, then how, how do you deal with that? Well, if it is a mental health issue, there are some things you can do to deal with that. That's a responsible action. But this victimization that, okay, I'm sick, therefore I'm not responsible, is a non sequitur. That's absurd. So, I mean, you're, you're making a distinction. What I, I'm not necessarily making that distinction. I'm just saying, even though you may have a mental health issue, that doesn't mean you're not responsible. Yeah. I mean, this is the, this is, we're facing this challenge today in our, in our civilization with a lot of gun violence. You know, a lot of these individuals who go in and shoot up a mall or a restaurant or something, right? It says, well, they've had mental health issues. Some have been in a mental health hospital or whatever. Good. That helps us to understand. That doesn't mean they're not responsible. So how, how society then deals with that is an immense challenge. I mean, it really is an immense challenge how we deal with this because nobody knows how to deal with it. At least I don't see anybody responsibly knowing how to deal with it. And so it, it's important to me as a, as a Christian, but also as a pastor, because I sort of have that role. But we need to, we need to have in our fellowship, our churches, in our fellowship of believers, the freedom to bring mental health issues to the table to have people pray about. There is no problem. I mean, nobody, right? My, my neighbor is struggling with cancer issue, had a heart attack, let's pray for him. Yes. You know, honestly, it's been a long time since I've been in a situation where someone has asked me to pray for a relative, a cousin, a sister, a brother, a husband, father, who has mental health issues. They're really struggling with a manic depressive issue. And I, I want you to pray. We don't do that. We're not comfortable with that in the church. And in the broader culture, we're not real comfortable with that. We're willing to come along and help people who have cancer issues or heart issues or diabetes or whatever it is. But when they have mental health issues, which are real, that's a real illness. That's a real sickness. That's real. It isn't made up. And, and then it's how, how now do we, how now do we help the, let's just keep it with the church. How do we help the church? know how to minister to and comfort and support people who are one struggling with mental health issues and two families that have a, a person that's, that's, that's a real issue in families. It's a real issue. I've been in many, many situations with families and it's, it, it's real. <laughs> and Jim, you're saying we should as Christians and in the body of Christ, reach out to those people to help support and help we can support that mm -hmm. individual because we love them, we care about exactly. them. Exactly, exactly. They're still God's creation. They're God's creature, yeah. created in His image. And and like somebody somebody that has cancer or diabetes or whatever, they have they're bipolar. That's a real condition. Yeah. <laughs> they strive. You know, I I I don't know if you've ever. If you've ever seen the movie, it's, it's an older book, but A Beautiful Mind. Yeah. It's about this brilliant mathematician, and, but he had delusion. They were real to him. And that's, I mean, it's a real story. That's based on fact. It's a real, real factual issue. I mean, he really struggled with that. And he got so much help. His wife was so helpful. He just had, he had to get to the point where he said, what I am seeing is not real. Yeah. Yeah. What I am seeing, and you know, these guys in black suits and black hats are... <laughs> feeding this conspiracy and all that he had in his mind, that, that what I'm seeing is not real. I mean, he just had a discipline and training, but he got lots of help. It was a long slog for him. And that, that's, that, that happens with a lot of people. 
but then to help and support that as the church. That we're not comfortable when doing. I tell, I know many are at our church. We have we've taken a couple. He's going to retire as a middle school principal, and we're putting them through an extensive training program where they're going to help us. And they're not they're not going to be professional therapists, but they're going to help us in this area of how to build the support groups within our fellowship for people that are struggling with marital issues but also mental health issues. What are the support things we can do to help them? Wow, did we ever get off the subject? Well, not really. Not but correct, man. From what Saul's struggle to what it is. Anybody online have a question? Yeah, Comment? Dr. Eckman, real quick. You yeah. know, yeah, right. this, is, this is a very complex issue. And, you know, is it chemical imbalance and so forth? But at right. what point, how do you determine if there is some type of demonic activity? Because I don't think everything that we're seeing in society can be attributed to just chemical imbalance. I think that there's just pure evil. And I think that's, I think, I, I think that there's still some that's attributed to demonic activity. So what, how do, how do we be discerning in that category? <laughs> well, that is not an easy question to answer, Rob, but uh, no, you are, you're absolutely right. Uh, what I'm pleading for is, there is not one. There is such a thing as mental health. There are mental illness issues that we as a church need to be sensitive to and help. But at the same time, and this is, I think, the point you're making, which is a much larger point, Satan's kingdom is a kingdom of disorder, dysfunction, and chaos. It's, it's, a, it's a kingdom that has as its core value hatred of human beings. And he is always fomenting anything within society that trumpets a chaos, disorder, and hatred for the human being. And so therefore, um, I, I think a lot of the chaos and disorder we see, broadly speaking, in our society is a result of satanic activity. And I mean, the, 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 whole, the whole idea and issue of, of demon possession and, and all that is a part of things you see in the Bible all over the place, I don't think we can be naive and not expect to see that in our culture, particularly as our culture gets farther and farther away from the things of, of the Lord. Because there isn't a vacuum. When a society gets farther and farther away from things of the Lord, that's not going to be a vacuum. Quickly, Satan's going to fill that. And the demonic and satanic activity is, is, is also going to be rampant. And I think that's a very difficult thing. That's a very difficult thing to do, to be able to discern to, to, to make that wise, you know, kind of evaluation, this isn't demonic. It really is genuinely a mental health issue. And I, I Rob, I think that's very difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, agree. I'm not qualified to make that distinction. No, I agree. I mean, but yet at the same time, I, when I, let me use this as an extreme example. But when I look at what Hamas did on, on October the 7th in Israel, that was pure demonic evil. That was energized and empowered by satanic evil. I don't have any problem making that decision. When I look at the Nazi Holocaust, that was pure satanic demonic evil unleashed by the power of the state of Germany. Same thing with Mussolini. I mean, you can, the same thing with, with what Stalin did in, in, in the early days of the Soviet Union, 1924, 25, into the early 30s, his great purges. 
I mean, that, that was pure demonic and energized and empowered evil. But I, Rob, I'm not comfortable in saying that every one of these examples of gun violence is just demonic possession. I, I, I'm not comfortable saying that. I, I wouldn't write it off. No, no, no. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that too, totally. I just, you don't see anybody, though, even mentioning this. No, that's right. The, oh, heavens no. It's no. all mental health. 100% yeah. mental health is how they categorize yeah. it. But I think what yeah. we're seeing is some of that, to your point, is is not. No, it, it, yeah, that's right. It's a very and that's hard thing for the church to deal with because we don't know what it is exactly. Right. So it's very hard to to deal with it. <clears throat> one of the uh, one of the aspects of this training that this couple is getting that are going to be on our staff uh, come next year. But anyway, and I finished their training. The guy that is training them, he has been involved in this for thirty five years. He goes through a series of questions and interviews with people who are exhibiting some mental health issues to try to make sure that this is not demonic, to try to make sure that this isn't. And he has uh, uh, there have been some really, uh, with a couple in our church that he worked with about three years ago, he, through all that he did in, in questioning them and praying with them, they uncovered some really clear evidences of the, of satanic evil in this man's life, and how they helped him get through that. I mean, so I mean that's that's where you need you need some individuals who are going to help you make those decisions when you're ministering to and wanting to serve people in your body. The larger question in our society is, and I think that's part of what you were saying too, Rob. That larger question in our society is the default response of everybody, oh, that's a mental health issue. That is not necessarily true either. <laughs> so, it's, it, yeah, it, so it's how do we as Christians and, and leaders in, in the church not ignore mental health issues. That's a real thing to deal with. But at the same time, be able to discern between what is a genuine mental health issue and what is also demonic. And that, that's not an easy distinction to make. But thanks for bringing that up. That's real good. Well, we took almost 20 minutes on this phrase, harmful spirit. So can we move on? Verse 16. Let, uh, well, verse 15. The servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit of God tormenting you, that our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. Verse 18. This, of course, is where David comes into the court. Look at how he is described. Look at the five key traits of David that are identified here. And one young man, one of the young men answered, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now notice this five-fold description of David. I want to talk about each one. Who is skillful in playing. He's a skillful musician. Number two, a man of valor. That's, that's really remarkable. Because I, the ESV translates that valor. You know what valor means. Warrior, bravery, courage. It's a military term. 
and in the ancient in the ancient world in, in the time of, of, of this Hebrew word, it was a military term. Thirdly, prudent in speech. Again, prudent, we don't use that word very often in our stuff, but prudent in speech. He's articulate. He speaks well. What he says is wise. What he says you pay attention to. Number four, this is much more difficult, a man of good presence. It's speaking of his physical appearance. Uh, The text doesn't say, maybe some of your texts say handsome. That wouldn't be quite correct. But um, a man of good presence, he presents himself well. His deportment, the way he handles himself, the way he looks. And then finally, and then since most importantly, the Lord is with him. And please note there that your Lord is Yahweh in, in uppercase letters, capital letters. So this is this is an extraordinary, this is an extraordinary introduction of David to us. It is an extraordinary introduction of David to Saul. Now remember, we learned in the previous chapter, excuse me, the previous paragraph of this chapter, that the Lord has already anointed David to be a new king. As far as we know, Saul isn't aware of this yet. He may have been, but as far as the text, it doesn't get us to understand that Saul is aware of all this. But the, the point now, this is how Saul brings David into his court. Now, one of the things we know and again, I, I don't want to get into this too deeply. But one of the things we know with mental health issues is that soothing, soothing situations where there's music, where there's a calm demeanor, helps a person to be able to, to get things together to deal with their issues, to face and deal with their issues. So Saul is going to be comforted. Saul is going to be um, and, and encouraged and soothed in his spirit. He's going to quiet down from his delusional <laughs> paranoia as the harp, the lyre, technically, that David plays. He's skillful. He's, he's courageous. He speaks well. He has a good deportment. And the Lord is with him. Now, that last phrase is the key for you and me in the big mega picture here. The Lord is with David. Because we learned earlier in, in the chapter, in verse 13, that the Spirit of the Lord has rushed upon him. So the Spirit of the Lord, and this is what the Holy Spirit always does, takes those innate talents that are part of the way God creates us, those innate talents, and now uses them through his divine enablement for God's glory. That's exactly in the New Covenant, the New Testament, God takes our talents, our innate giftedness, and enhances them with spiritual giftedness. This is what this, this, this enablement for service to the Lord is your spiritual gift, or sometimes people, often, usually, normally, actually, people have more than one spiritual gift. So it's it, those two parallels. But here it's David. So all that he is, the way God created him, is enhanced by the spirit of God's enablement and empowerment. The Lord is with him. But Jim, a question? Yeah, please. Is it also notable that it's one thing to hear that the spirit went within him, but here you have someone else saying that the Lord is with him. So it's, it's recognizing also that, that. 
there's an outward right. something about him. People recognize that God is with him. That's correct. That's correct. It's evidenced by other than they notice that. That's exactly right. And that will be the case with David. Therefore, sent, I'm in verse 19 now. Therefore, uh, Saul sent messengers to Jesse, send me your David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread. There's a donkey again. Glenn, donkey, got it. Laden yep. with bread and a skid of wine, a young goat, sent him to David, uh, by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. Notice this language. And Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. Now, uh, that uh, needs to be explained just a little bit because, I mean, our armor, he hadn't carried the armor of, day, of, of King Saul. But that what that really means is, not only did that, but he's a very close personal servant and attendant of Saul. Now, everywhere Saul is, David is. So, it, it almost, the, the way the text reads, this seems to be somewhat instantaneous. But as a result of David's ministry to Saul in these bouts of delusional paranoia, it soothes him, it calms him down, and this is so effective for Saul, as Glenn said, Saul's even recognizing there's something really special about this guy. He elevates him. So this this is quite important because, again, I hope you got it. Armor bear, yes, he carried the armor of Saul, but what is really important is everywhere Saul went, David went. So in terms of David's, um, if I use the word court, you know what I mean? In terms of David's court, uh, Saul's court, excuse me, David is always right with him. And he's still, he's still a teenager. Verse 22, and Saul sent to Jesse saying, let David remain in my service for he's found favor in my sight. Verse 23, and whenever the harmful spirit from God came upon Saul, David took the lyre, played it with his hands. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed. <coughs> Whatever is going on, however you explain it, in terms of the condition of Saul, David's playing of his lyre, and all that we read about in that fivefold description, but especially the Lord is with him, soothed Saul. So he is... He, David, is now, you know, apparently in the court of Saul continually, which then leads us to chapter 17. And even unbelievers, people who have never read the Bible ever, never cracked it open, know this story because it's about Goliath. All right. Now, it took us a half hour to go through verses 14 through 23 but we had a lot of important bunny scrail discussions. And if it's all right with you, I'm ready to leave it. Actually, even if it isn't all right with you, we're leaving it. <laughs> now, chapter 17 is about Goliath. There's a lot of discussion in commentaries and expositors. Is chapter 17 before what we just read or after what we just read? The sense seems to be something like this, that David would be in the court, and then he would go back to serve his dad for a while. Then he'd come back into the court and then go back. We're not sure because Saul would travel and stuff, so we don't know exactly. But at this point in this battle, which is really, I'll explain what it is in a minute, David isn't there. So, I mean, I don't know if you... Um, 
if you follow any of the maps I gave you in, 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 the, in the packet or not. But chapter 17 is about the Philistines invading Judah. Now, um, I am going to draw this on the board because the map I gave you have a lot. Here is the Mediterranean coast, and this is Gaza. You all know that because there's a war going on there right now. But Gaza is historically where the Philistines were. And then right here, right here was the little land grant of Dan. But then the rest of this is the land grant of Judah. And right here is Bethlehem. Fifteen miles to the west of Bethlehem is the valley of Elah. Been there many times. It's a deep valley. Well, not a real deep valley, but there's a little mountain on this side and a little mountain on this side. Okay? Saul has brought his forces, and they're here. The Philistines have brought their forces, and they're here. You have the two forces standing here, and they propose something. It's, it's called the Battle of Champions. It has nothing to do with Wheaties cereal, but that used to be. None of you know what I'm talking about. I'm the oldest person in the room, so I know you guys don't. But, you know, Wheaties used to be the breakfast of champions. That is nothing to do with it. What you would do is each side would choose a champion. And the idea was that the champion of Israel would fight the champion of the Philistines, and whoever won, the one that lost would now submit to the one that, that won in that struggle. So whom did the Philistines choose? Goliath. Israel hasn't chosen anybody yet. And so Goliath, on the east side, of the uh, west side of the Valley of Elah, is there hurling all kinds of insults. All kinds of challenges. And the Jews, the Israelites, Saul, and all of his are just shaking in their boots. They're not, nobody is going to, nobody is going to be the champion of Israel. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and camped between Soko and Aziah. Now all of these names don't mean anything to you in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah. I just showed you where that is. It's approximately 15 miles to the west of Bethlehem. And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain of one side. That would be to the west, as I showed you here on the map. And Israel stood on the mountains of the other side with a valley between them. This was on the east. If Israel in the east, there's a mountain. If the Philistines in the west, there's a mountain. And in the middle is the valley of Elah. Okay? And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion, as I mentioned. That's, that's the typical Hebrew word. That's a very common. Ancient Greece fought things like that. Egypt, I mean, this was a very typical methodology of warfare. His name was Goliath of Gath. Gath is one of the five key cities of the Philistines. Modern-day Gath is, is 
basically in the Gaza area, and it's in ruins now, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, you don't measure anything by cubits, but it's probably 18 inches. That means Goliath is nine foot, nine inches tall. What word would you use to describe him? He's a giant. And every child in the world, that's probably not true, but many children in the world know the story of David and Goliath. Adults know the story of David and Goliath, even though they never read 1 Samuel 17. He had a helmet of bronze on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. Do you know what that means? You know, over the breast, it's very heavy. It's very, very heavy in weight. It's very, very heavy in thickness, so that a spear thrown at it would not pierce the body. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is an enormous amount of weight. And he had bronze armor on his legs, a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of the spear was like, notice it's a simile, like a weaver's beam. And the spear's head weighed 600 shekels. So that, that coat of mail, 500 shekels, that's about 125 pounds. What he was wearing over his chest, which is really, really remarkable. And so you, you have this he, you, you have this enormous man wearing this very formidable set of armor plus an enormous spear. And a shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. I'm in verse 8. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. Remember, they're on the mountain to, to, the, to the east. Come down from the mountain. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But I prevail against him and kill him, and you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And then Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were encouraged, and they went up to fight. That's not what it says. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, again, you're very familiar with this story, but as is correct, Goliath is, you know, the right word, a giant, with formidable army and spear and so on, challenging Israel. Enter David, verse 12. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. Ephrathite, that's the clan. Remember, every tribe was made up of many clans. Every clan was made up of many families. So David's family, his dad is Jesse, is of the clan Ephra, which is one of the clans that make up the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years, meaning Jesse was old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. So the three oldest boys of Jesse are in the battle. They're part of Saul's army. The names of these three sons who went into the battle were Eliab, the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. Now verse 14, David was the youngest. 
The three eldest followed Saul. We don't know about the other boys, because remember, he had eight sons. But David, now this is obviously a part of his role, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So that, that connects us with the previous chapter. He would be in the court of Saul for a while, play his lyre, etc., then he'd go back to his dad and inherit for the sheep. So, I mean, that, that's explaining. Because it isn't that far. We're not talking about a huge distance. So anyway, how long did this taunt of Goliath last? Verse, four, verse 16, for 40 days. The Philistine came forward, took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah, that's a measuring, it's about three-fifths of a bushel, take an ephah of this parched grain, ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses, cheeses to the commander of their thousand. All that means is, this was very typical. Saul had divided the army into groups of a thousand. Each one of the thousand groups had a, a leader. So Jesse says, not only take some stuff for the boys to eat, take some cheese for the commander. That's a smart, shrewd move. I want my boys to be in the favor of the commander of the thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Verse 19. So Saul and they and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper, took the provisions, and went as Jesse commanded. And he came to the encampment of the host. As the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle and army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, ran to the ranks, went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, actually he's talking now with his three brothers, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before. What we just read about in the previous verses. And David heard him. Now the focus is, how is David going to respond to this? How's Saul responding? He's cowering in fear. How are all the military leaders, the commander of the groups of thousand, thousand, thousand? They're all cowering in fear. Here's David. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who came up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. So, whoever these people are, speak to David. And in fact, speak to anybody. Nobody I'm sorry, you guys online, I'm getting extremely warm and I can solve that problem by taking my jacket off. I just did that. So they hear, all of them hear, but David hears it. Whoever kills Goliath, King Saul will reward him. Great riches. He will give him his daughter, and he'll make his father's house free in Israel. What does that mean? Free of all taxation. Free of all military obligation. Your boys will no longer be consigned into the army. Wow, what a promise. 
David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? I want to stop for a moment. Let's analyze David's rhetorical question. Part one, when he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Why would he characterize Goliath nine foot, nine inches as an uncircumcised Philistine? He doesn't say anything about his power, his height, his weapons. He calls him an uncircumcised Philistine. What's that mean? Circumcised when he puts his faith. Okay. Is there anything else in that phrase, uncircumcised Philistine? It sounds racist. I'm sorry? It sounds racist. It sounds racist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> He's not one of us. What's the key in that phrase? What's the key term in that phrase? Uncircumcised. He's outside the covenant. Because remember, circumcision from Genesis 17, circumcision is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. It is the sign that we are the covenant people of God. So when David characterizes Goliath as that uncircumcised Philistine, he's saying, He's outside of God's covenant. Now, Rob, in, in, a, in a sense, <laughs> it's racist. I mean, in the sense that it's just distinguishing the key identity of being a Jew. We're circumcised with an unconditional covenant relationship with God. He's not. Then the second thing that he says, he is defying the armies of the living God. So because he's an uncircumcised Philistine outside the covenant, he has the audacity to defy God. So what he's saying is the people of Israel, who are the unconditional covenant people of Israel, serve the living God. He doesn't. So by defying Israel, he is in effect defying the living God. So why are you afraid? Yeah. Yeah, so, and that's exactly it, Bill. So the implication of that rhetorical question is, why are you guys afraid? Listen, Saul, and really everybody for that matter, but he falls the king. He's to be the servant leader. He's to be the shepherd. Deuteronomy 17. Saul is driven by fear. David, by faith. David's rhetorical question is a question that just overflows with his faith. David understood what it meant to be a child of a children of a part of the children of Israel. He understood who Yahweh is, and he understood that he's outside the covenant. Why are you afraid of him? People answered him in the same way, so it shall be done to the man who kills him. Reaffirming the threefold promise. They're not even getting what David is saying. Time for a coffee break. Living God as opposed to your idols. 
That's a good point. I should have stressed that too. That he characterized God as a living God, that is in contrast to their God, Dagon, who is a piece of wood down in Ashbon, which is where they kept him, the temple down there in Ascalon. So, I mean, it, it's just, it, it, it just it exudes a faith. That's why David is called a man of God's own heart. Let, let me put it another way. Saul and his men are seeing this situation as human beings. And the natural default response of a human being in a condition like that is fear. A paranoid, gripping, riveting, incapacitating fear. Where's David? He looks at this situation through the eyes of faith. He sees an enemy of the living God, not the dead idol Dagon, which the Philistines mentioned, worshipped. And he says, why are you afraid? He's an uncircumcised Philistine. We serve the living God. He's defying his army. Now notice the response of the oldest brother, the eldest of the family, Eliab, firstborn of Jesse. Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the man, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you come down to see the battle. You're a spectator. You're just coming. You're showing off by your exuding language. Who do you think you are? You're the long whippersnapper of my brother. I'm the oldest, and I'm here. I got my sword. What do you have? Well, we're about to find out what he has. So his brother is hardly supportive. But that's kind of typical, isn't it? The oldest brother always looks down on the youngest, right? No, your family wasn't like that. Okay, forget it. But anyway, so I mean, you just have this, this, this inner, inner tent, interpersonal tension between siblings, the oldest deriding the youngest. <clears throat> David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? You know, it's like he's defensive. What have I done? Just a word. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And then people answered him again as before, meaning the threefold promise of Saul, etc. When the day when the words that David spoke were heard and repeated them before Saul, he sent for him. Now again, you have to remember from the previous chapter, Saul has a relationship with David. But it's not a military relationship. It's not any kind of you know, military command or battle situation. It's in court where he plays his liar. <clears throat> and David said to Saul in verse 32, Let no man's heart fail because of him, him meaning Goliath. You... And, and, and he goes in the middle of verse 32. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And David is choosing. It's really, it's really a, please note this. This is a mark of his deference to the king. 
David is deferring to the king, and he calls himself correctly your servant. I will go and fight the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against the Philistine fighting him, for you are but a youth. And the Hebrew word youth there is na'ar, which means an old, older teenager. So you and I would probably translate something like this. You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a teenager. The youth there is na'ar, which means a teenager. And he has been a man of war from his youth. I mean, damn, this is ridiculous. Here's a teenager, and here's a veteran military guy of the Philistines. This is ridiculous. Verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant, notice again the term of deference, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock. I went after him, struck him, and delivered him out of its mouth, meaning the lamb out of the mouth of the bear or the lion. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. Notice again this language. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. So I'm not inexperienced. You never did this. I killed a lion. He's using the plural, so apparently it's more than one. I killed lions and bears. I want to say that you framed in the Wizard of Oz, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, but you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, that, you know, I took care of all those. If I can kill them, I can kill Goliath. But then notice verse 37. What word should you write in the margin of your Bible at verse 37? Faith. And David said, Yahweh who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. No other Israelite was saying that that day. Forty days of taunting by Goliath. And here is this Na'ar of Israel, this teenager of Israel, who had killed lions and tigers and bears, oh my. As if God delivered me from them, he will deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Extraordinary faith. And Saul said, you have given me the courage to do what the king should do, and I will stand against the Philistine as a champion of Israel. That is not what Saul says. What does he say? Go, and the Lord be with you. I'll stay back here, David, but you go. I got it. I'm going to stay back here. You go. It's just, he should have been encouraged and roused to the role as the king, but he didn't do it. He is willing to allow this Na'ar, this teenager, to do it. We'll never get this done, but I'm going to start. 
Then Saul clothed David with his armor. Remember, David's in the ark. He's a teenager. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he trained, tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. He's never worn them. I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Now I want you to notice his weapons. These are the tools of a shepherd. David is going to use the tools of a shepherd to confront the uncircumcised Philistine. He took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook. Now, the Hebrew word stone there is not a little pebble about this book. It's a stone about two to three inches in diameter. That's like a baseball. And not a softball, but like a baseball, a hardball, you know what I mean? So, I mean, this, this is a fairly formidable stone. When I take people to Israel, we always go to the Valley of Elah, and the state of Israel every year takes dump trucks full of stones and dumps mm-hmm. them in the valley. <laughs> and I always say, boy, if you find one of these stones that has some blood on it, we keep that. That's the one David here. It's a joke. <laughs> I mean, they, because everybody takes souvenirs from the Valley of Elah, but none of them are the ones that Israel brings in it every year because so many people take them. But these are, these are significant stones and put them in his shepherd's pouch. Because as a shepherd, that's how he dealt with the lions and, and, and the bears and so on. And the sling was in his hand. That's his third weapon. And he approached the Philistine. Now, the sling looks something like this. He puts the stone right there. And you bring these two things together, and you swirl it around, he'd let go one of the strings. And his, every army in the ancient world had slingers. Slingers, and they were, they were professional, um, professional parts of the army where they would, they would be on the, on the battlefield. They would be the ones that would go ahead, and they would sling them. Incredible precise accuracy. And you hit somebody in the head with one of those, like a two or three inch ball, it's going to knock them out. At least it'll disable them so that the rest of the infantry can go up. That, they were tremendous. It's, it says in David's army, the tribe of Benjamin provided 300 slingers in David's army. I was just reading a, a, a book on uh, Russia and Persia in the ancient world, the Parthian Empire, well, anyway. And in both, it was, I, I never realized this. In both armies, they had professional slingers. And one of my trustees was my, my dear friend, Ronnie Simone, who's a, a Jewish guy, retired lieutenant colonel in the Israeli Defense Force. He knew a Palestinian kid, and he showed us how this worked. You should have seen that. He was about 13 or 14 as he took that sling and whirled it around, and he hit tree after tree after tree that he was aiming at. So it's a fantastic skill, and it was very much a part of the ancient world. It was very much a part of ancient military warfare. But David is coming to the battle, not as a professional army, not trained. He's a shepherd, and he brings his weapons. What's his weapon? His staff, his pouch filled with five stones, and his sling. 
And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David. I'm in verse 41. With his shield bare in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. That's how the ESV translates that. But you know what? He's mocking him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you had come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his God. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin. I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth. Just what he said, we're going to do it to you. And then notice this purpose clause, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Faith, and the R of Israel, a teenager of Israel, showing faith that was lacking in the king, lacking in the military commanders. And I love what he says to Goliath. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the armies of heaven. That's what that Hebrew title means. You have defied him. And in his name and with his power, I am going to kill you today. If you want to know what happens, you got to come back next week. I'm out of time. But you, I mean, I, I'm, I know you know this story, but that I draw your attention. The remarkable faith of this man, David, this teenager, David. The year is 1024 BC, the turning point in David's life. From here on out, starting in this date, 1024 BC, God is going to start preparing David to be the king. He's shown his valiance. He's shown his valor. He's shown his courage. Is he ready to be king? No, he is not ready. You would think he would be. Well, no, I mean, you're going to kill Goliath. He should be the king. Nope. He's not ready. We've got to talk about why he's not ready next week. Are you with me? Okay, one of you is, but I'll assume the rest of you are. Right, let me pray here because I've got to get out of here. Father, this is a very familiar part of Scripture. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath, but it's extraordinary. I hope the guys didn't miss it. The language that David uses, it's a language of faith, not a language of courage and valor. It's the language of faith. There's no fear in David's words. There's no fear in his temperament. Yet Saul, the king, is cowering in fear way back. And here's this teenager. He stands with remarkable faith against this nine-foot, nine-inch giant. He's about to kill him because it is the battle is the Lord's, he says. Yahweh, it's his battle. He's going to fight. 
and he's going to give me into your hands. I give you into my hands. What a remarkable example of faith. We face giants every day. Not the little giants of David, but the giants of despair, of hurt, the giants of, of formidable challenges, the giants that go with getting older and all that starts to happen to our bodies, the giants of just despair and disappointment. Lord, we represent you. We draw on the power and strength of the living God. So, Lord, help us and enable us, as David did, to represent you. So what did he said, that the world will know that there is a God in Israel, that the world will know that we serve Jesus. And his power and his enablement, his grace is mighty. We want to represent him to this dark, needy world in Jesus' name. Amen. See you next week.